starting in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul writes, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's talking about what is the most important thing to him, what is the greatest treasure, what is the thing of greatest value, And we see in verses 7 and 8 that he's tossed off all the things that he held dear in his former life. And if you back up to the beginning of the chapter, you can see what some of those things were. Um, He said in verse 4, I have this ultimate confidence in the flesh. If anybody has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul was the most equipped. He was the best educated. He was probably one of the smarter guys on the scene. He had everything. There There was absolutely no question. Uh, that he had everything he needed to be to be a top-tier varsity Jew, member of the Sanhedrin. But in verses 7 and 8, he starts talking about how those things, they were gained, but he now sees them as loss when he considers knowing Christ himself, actually knowing the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, I count them rubbish. All of those things that he cherished, that he held on to, that gave him such pride, he counts them as rubbish so that he may gain Christ. He cannot gain Christ if he doesn't throw off all of the other things. And he says in verse 9, his goal is to be found in in Christ, to actually be in Christ and not have a righteousness of his own, not a righteousness that's derived from obeying the law that he describes in verse 4, that he, he did so well in obeying, but a righteousness that comes on the basis of faith, of actually trusting in Christ and then submitting to him and his lordship over your life. And then in verse 10, he says that the reason for all of that is to actually know Christ. To know Christ and know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And all of that, what that produces is a conformity to the person of Jesus Christ and and his death. And he says that so that he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so what I want to just talk about here this morning is how this relates to our Bible reading and our prayer life. The things that Paul is talking about here in verses 9 and 10 is actually the things that we do when we, the things that we strengthen and the things that we bolster and the things that we build the foundation for when we're reading our Bibles and when we're spending time alone with God in prayer. Uh, We know Christ when we read about Christ. We know Christ when we talk to him in prayer. That is of great benefit to the believer on a daily basis. It's also a great benefit to the believer on an eternal basis when we look at the end of of verse uh, 10 and the beginning of verse 11. He does all of this being conformed to the death of Christ, dying to himself in order that he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so when you drop down to verse 14, this is why Paul writes, I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He, he knows that the, the day is coming when his life is coming to an end. So he presses on in knowing Christ every day, every week, every month. And so just another encouragement for us to continue the, the path of knowing Christ. And the right way to do that is by reading our Bibles, by praying, meditating on Scripture, worshiping God at the opportunities you can. So that's an encouragement for all of us. It's an encouragement for me standing here this morning. I hope it's an encouragement for you. Uh, Continue to do the things that you are doing. Just press on and excel still more. Uh, And the day that we will go to be with Christ is coming. So uh, keep some perspective on all of that. And just want to encourage you guys to do the same things you always have been doing. And just excel still more. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Denny Pagel. For those of you that uh, I have not personally met or know me. I have been at Grace Bible Church since 2008 and have been an elder since uh, 2016. So it's a, it's a real privilege for me to, to be here. Uh, just an honor to uh, be able to speak with you men this morning. 
So um, let's pray, and then we'll dig into uh, our uh, theology of repentance. So, Father, thank you for your grace. You have given us the ultimate gift to help us with restoration and repentance. You sent your Son. It was through his blood on the cross, his sacrifice for our sins that allow us to have a relationship with you, to be forgiven, to have no fear of your wrath, to have a relationship with you where your love is unconditional, unlimited. And it is a relationship that we know that you care for us. You love us beyond anything that we could ever imagine. What, what else could we ask for? Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing that I want to point out is that there are a couple of handouts that uh, went along with uh, your normal uh, build materials. One of them is the put off, put on list. And uh, as you work through the, uh, your theology of repentance, it is uh, a desire uh, from God's word that you identify the sins that you're committing specifically. So uh, that is a, uh, that's a list of uh, biblical terms as far as sin goes. And the other one is uh, over the past few years of being able to teach and work through uh, theology uh, of repentance uh, in putting together materials. Uh, each time I run across something that I think is very helpful in my understanding of repentance, I pull it aside and that's what the other handout is uh, there. I think there were five elements of repentance. that. So just... Uh, Repentance is uh, something that uh, I think you, we're going to be able to fair, clearly define this morning. Um, but the problem is, is that we don't, the, the results or observable um, character of a repentant person is not always real obvious. And so that's one of the things that uh, um, we just want to help, uh, help clarify. So um, last time that we were together, Matt Kelso mentioned briefly um, in his lesson to have a, a short sin account. And so with that, we're going to, uh, we are going to see today uh, what, that, uh, what that looks like. And uh, we don't want to allow our sin to linger. We need to be sensitive to sin. We need to know our sin. And we need to have the right perspective on it. As uh, Dave Harvey says, without a robust perspective on sin, the very notion of what it means to know God is profoundly weakened. So let me say that again. Without a robust perspective on sin, the very notion of what it means to know God is profoundly weakened. So we need to know God, we need to know his character, we need to know his attributes, and we must have the proper perspective of sin and full disclosure of sin if we want to have victory over our sin. Second Peter 1 verses 2 and 3 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So I think we all understand that our sin is against a holy God. And we need to grieve over that and humble ourselves before God, asking forgiveness from him and from others that we sin against. Humility is key in keeping 
a short sin account. It's not just a, a flippant, oh, I'm sorry for that, didn't mean it. It is to be humble and go to that person go to, and go to the Lord. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Sin is serious. And therefore we want to deal with it as such. John Owen famously wrote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So why do we fight? Why do we, why do we uh, fight sin? Why do we try to kill it? Well, um, it might be because we hate the consequences of our sin. It might be because we are ashamed of the dis- disgrace that's attached to it. Uh, it could be simply that we experience a thrill of victory when we conquer sin. Well, uh, those are inappropriate reasons. Realizing that all sin is against God helps us to fight sin for the right reason because we know it hurts God and that is the last thing that we want to do against our Heavenly Father. Jerry Bridges explains that our problem is that our attitudes towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. Thomas Watson wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Another author states, if, you, if we think of sin as merely a horizontal problem, we may begin to believe that our sin is small <clears throat> and our virtue, virtue is sizable. So, realizing the vertical nature of sin um, disabuses us of that notion because it reveals to us the catastrophic seriousness of sin. The more bitter our sin becomes to us, the more sweet will be the gospel. So let's take a look at uh, the theology of repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It, and its meaning in the New Testament always means a change in purpose and specifically turning from sin. One author writes, true repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. I'll say it again, true repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also real repentance. The two cannot be separated. In a sense, it is putting off our old life and turning to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. In MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus He states, repentance begins with a recognition of sin. In other words, we understand that all of our sin is offensive to God and we are personally responsible for our own guilt. He goes on to say that genuine repentance often accompanies an overwhelming sense of sorrow. And this sorrow is what we're going to discuss today in 2 Corinthians 7.10, which we're going to look at in a minute. MacArthur says, genuine repentance involves a change of direction, a transformation of the will. It is far more than just a change of our mind. It constitutes a willingness, a determination to abandon stubborn disobedience and to surrender to the will of Christ. Repentance takes place at conversion And it begins a progressive, lifelong process of confession. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This active, continuous attitude of repentance produces the poverty of spirit, the mourning and the meekness that God, Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 6. These are marks of a true believer. Paul Tonchus, who is another resource that I use in studying repentance, says, Biblical or genuine repentance is an important discipline of the Christian life, but it can only be properly understood within the larger work of sanctification. God's goal is to remake us into the image of Christ, and in Christ we died to sin, and we were made alive unto God and received the righteousness of Christ as a gift of grace. However, the outworking of our new position in Christ requires the ongoing of putting off sin and putting on practical righteousness. In John 17, Jesus prays that we will be sanctified by the truth of God's word. So as you practice your spiritual disciplines, reading the word, memorizing it, meditating on God's word, the Holy Spirit uses scripture to reveal our heart and to convict, convict us of things in our life, lives that need to change. And we will need to repent. We need to change our mind about our sin and change the direction of our walk. That's essentially what repentance is. It's a 180 degree change or turn in a different or in another direction. So how do, we, how do you respond to the knowledge of your sin? Are you sensitive to sin? Or is there someone in your life that... Uh, constantly needs to point out your sin. And what does confession look like in your life? What does repentance look like? So as Christians, we may all think that we have a good understanding of what biblical repentance should look like. We are not only to examine ourselves, but others who claim repentance. We live around unrepentant, unrepentant sin every day. And we must be able to identify that in our walk and look to help others to see what true repentance should look like. So in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, uh, this process is described by Paul and it describes in detail the repentance of the Corinthians after they discredited Paul's teaching and assaulted his character. This is where we're going to spend most of our time today. So as you turn there, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, let me set the stage of everything that is going on at this particular time. In Paul's first visit to Corinth, he stayed there for 18 months, which was a part of his second missionary journey. This is described in Acts 18. It was about in the year A.D. 51. After leaving Corinth, Paul received reports of immorality in the Corinthian church. He wrote a letter to the church to address this sin. However, the letter was lost. This is described in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He received further reports of divisions in the church and received a letter from the Corinthians with questions about his teaching while in Corinth. And Paul responded from Ephesus with his second letter, which is known by us as the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul learned of further difficulties in Corinth due to self-appointed false apostles, which he describes in 2 Corinthians 11, 12, and 13. Paul traveled to Corinth from Ephesus, from Ephesus for what he called a painful 
visit. He had to confront the false teachers that were there. The Corinthians did not stand with Paul before these false teachers. Paul was grieved by the lack of support from the Corinthians. Paul wrote his third letter, known as the Severe Letter, which was also lost. It was delivered by Titus. But, and this letter caused sorrow for the Corinthians. Paul was anxious for news of how the Corinthians responded to his severe letter. So this is all developing the context now of Paul's response that we're going to look at in 2 Corinthians 7. Finally, Titus met Paul with the news that the majority of the Corinthians had repented of their rebellion against Paul. And Paul was comforted by Titus, Titus's report and proceeded to write his fourth letter, which is 2 Corinthians. And he did this in about A.D. 55. So if you're in 2 Corinthians uh, 7, uh, let's read verses 5 through 13. For even when we came to, into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. So there again, the Corinthians had abandoned their pastor and apostle when he had confronted the false teachers before them. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 and verse 15, Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And MacArthur describes this about Paul's caring, caring character for uh, the people he was discipling. He says, he was a soul watcher, so serious and so devoted that he would literally expend himself and even give his life to protect their souls. He understood his duty. He understood the nature of it. He understood who he represented as an under-shepherd of Christ. But unfortunately, the Christians, the Corinthians did not. And so they had rebelled against Paul, defected from him, joined in a series of accusations against him by the false apostles. So you can see the grieving that uh, Paul was undergoing at this time. When Paul wrote the third letter delivered by Titus, confronting them for abandoning, abandoning him, there was not yet at that time any evidence of repentance by the Corinthians. It wasn't until Titus returned that Paul learned the effect of his words in, the, in that last third letter, in the lost third letter, it caused them sorrow. 
there were attitudes that Titus could discernibly see and measure in them that indicated they were repentant. The relational strife was apparently mending. So let's take a look at the eight marks of uh, what solid repentance looks like. Um, These are not distant generalities, but more so close-up details. So the first mark we see is sorrow, verses 9 and 10. So let's compare godly sorrow with worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a grief about sin vertically toward God. It is a knowledge of your sin against a holy God. Godly sorrow is brokenness that causes us to mourn and weep over our sin, which in turn turn produces the fruit of repentance. Paul describes right thinking about his sorrow over sin in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. That, in contrast to worldly sorrow, sorrow, worldly sorrow is a grief on a horizontal basis or manner. You are grieved over your circumstances, the consequences that may be resulting from your sin, or feelings of guilt. Worldly sorrow is shallow repentance and is very short-lived. Biblical repentance requires a sorrow that is according to the will of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The word sorrow is mentioned eight times in verses 8 through 11. So it tells me that this is more than just a, a mark of repentance. It's a prerequisite to repentance. So where where do we see godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow in the scriptures? Well, first of all, remember godly sorrow does not act like guilt. Guilt is not godly sorrow. Many of us get these two mixed up. Feeling guilty is being aware of your guilt. We know we did something wrong when we feel guilt. And not that there's anything wrong with feeling guilty, but understand this. You can feel guilt to the point of sorrow, but not have godly sorrow. The example that comes to mind is Judas was sorrowful, but not repentant. His guilt caused him to run from Jesus and commit suicide. He ran from his Savior. On the other hand, Peter is on the other end of that example. He is an example of godly sorrow. sorrow. And if you look at Luke 22, 61 through, and 62, and you don't have, don't have to go there, this is where Peter is denying Christ. In verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter, says this of Peter, and he went out and wept bitterly. This is godly sorrow because we know that Peter was a man who stood by his Savior. He did not run away from him. So from sorrow then we go to our uh, second mark of godly repentance. It's earnestness. Verse 11 says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. So note the way Paul begins says, for behold, this is a, an exclamatory and exhilarating phrase. It is a statement that says, wow, well, this is very clear to me what you're feeling. 
Behold, Paul is exhilarated by what he sees and what he has heard as Titus brings to him the report from the Corinthians. Titus is bringing an eyewitness account. It appears to Paul that their repentance is, uh, has real substance, it is practical, it is visible, and has observable effects. These are the things that you look for in repentance. MacArthur says, where there is real repentance, there will be a manifest earnestness produced. So, um, how do we describe earnestness? It is a persistent striving to correct a pattern of sin. It's a word for eagerness. And what it means is eagerness toward righteousness, toward purity. It ends the indifference that you have towards sin, the indifference towards iniquity. It ends the complacency about being in evil and deception that led you into that in the first place. It produces a strong desire to do right, to make things right, to make restitution, to correct, to restore the broken relationship. There will be a passion. There will be action and movement to make it right and eagerness. If there's one word to describe earnestness, it's eagerness, sprinting away from your sin towards holiness. The Corinthians were once unconcerned to defend Paul. They believed the lies about him. They were inactive, not eager to defend Paul. But now they are actively eager toward him. They, genu they are genuinely repentant and earnest to resolve their offense. Earnest for what to, to do what is right. So whatever had them hesitant toward Paul is now gone. They were eager to move in the direction of holiness. Genuine repentance doesn't have to push or command the individual to do what is right. Let me read that again. Genuine repentance does not have to push or command the individual to do what is right. They are willingly and aggressively moving toward righteousness no matter what the consequences. Earnestness reveals repentance. So from sorrow and earnestness, we now turn to Mark number three, which is vind vindication. What vindication of yourselves? And again, notice the exclamatory word, what? This word seems to elevate the meaning of the statement. What vindication of yourselves? So what do we mean by vindication? What does the Bible mean by vindication? Well, it means to clear your name. You want to remove the reputation that you have for that sin. It is a strong desire to remove yourself from that sin sinful pattern and restore with all whom you have sinned against. You seek to restore trust and confidence that you have in those that you've sinned against. You want to do what is right. They, the Corinthians, desired to clear themselves of the guilt of their lack of defense of Paul, their defection. They wanted to remove the stigma of their guilt and blame. So it's like a son who is eager to clear himself with his dad. In sinning, he comes to him and he says, and not, not by lying, defending, or denying what they did, but to go humbly through confession of their sin and acknowledging their wrongdoing. Putting all excuses aside, no blame shifting, but just confessing and acknowledging their sin. The only way to vindicate yourself when you are guilty is through humble acknowledgement of your guilt. 
and demonstrating you know what to do in opposition to that. Vindication reveals repentance. So let's move on to the uh, fourth mark of godly repentance, which is indignation. Again, what indignation? Indignation is anger or outrage over the decision to sin. It is anger with yourself and anger over the shame that you have brought onto your Lord and Savior. Outrage is a strong word and the Corinthians were outraged over their own sin against Paul and not coming to his defense. They now hate what they once loved and practiced what they once loved and practiced, which was hanging Paul out to dry, a disdain for what they had done. Repentance evidences a radical change of mind towards sin. Where there once was love for sin, there is now outrage. And that is about a big, as big a change that you can have. Um, indignation reveals repentance. So from sorrow and earnestness, vindication, then indignation, we now turn to the fifth mark of godly sorrow, which is fear. Fear. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What fear. Fear is a healthy reverence for the one who is most offended by your sin. So let's start with the fear of God, a worshipful fear of God. It arises out of a sense of his majestic holiness and the purity of his selfless love for you. He is so holy that you fear wronging him. He is so loving that you fear betraying his love you are sobered into holiness. Where you had been once, where you had once been casual and unconcerned in your sin, where you had no sight of God as you looked on your sin with the light, suddenly you become aware of God and his character. You see the grotesque evil that you're trifling with. It was always this way but the scales have now fallen from your eyes and now you see God and your sin as you should. This is a fear that is worshipful. It does not run from God, but to God. It is a fear that makes you want to run away, that makes you not want to run away from your offended brother, but to your offended brother to reconcile and restore. Fear reveals repentance. MacArthur says, There will be a longing, driving eagerness to make the relationship right. There will be a strong desire to clear one's name and remove the stigma that sin has brought. There will be hatred, outrage, and indignation over iniquity in one's own life. And there will be a longing to reverence God and fear God, and exalt God, and worship God appropriately. This is a sense of holy fear. So on to our sixth mark of godly repentance, longing. Again, what longing? There we again see the word, what? And longing is a strong desire to restore the relationship that has been harmed because of sin. The Corinthians were now positively drawn toward Paul. They desired Paul. They desired reconciling with him. They yearned to see him with a strong, positive affection. They no longer wanted to distance themselves. They, wanted, they, they no longer wanted distance between them and him. 
They were no longer withholding themselves from him. They were not keeping themselves at a distance from, from him. They were longing for him. What longing? And longing reveals repentance. But there was even more than this longing. Paul experienced more than them longing for him. There was a zeal. And this is number seven. Zeal. Zeal is a passion motivated by love and hate. You love something so much that you hate anything that brings harm to it. You have a zeal for the Word of God and hate anything that blasphemes God's truth. Zeal goes beyond longing. The Corinthians were stirred up into an even greater fervor for Paul. They had an intense desire to give evidence of their repentance. They were zealous, zealous to comply with anything more that could be done to put their relationship with Paul on more solid ground. So, they are not just turned from their sin. They are not just turned toward Paul. They, are not just, they do not just long for Paul, but they are zealous for Paul and their relationship with him. They are zealous to remove every obstacle between them and Paul. So zeal reveals repentance. So we have sorrow, earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and then finally our eighth mark of God, the repentance, uh, avenging. What avenging of wrong? When repentance is real, it seeks justice for the avenging of wrongs. Justice is applying a consequence that avenges the wrong and promotes holiness of life. So how do we know when someone is genuinely repentant? When they are done defending themselves? Done trying to protect themselves? Done pitying themselves? But rather they are avenging the wrong they have done. They are ready for justice, ready to bring justice down even though it is going to fall on their own heads. So avenging of wrong reveals repentance. So what about the last statement in verse 11? In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. The Greek word for innocent means pure or holy. And MacArthur says this, they demonstrated the integrity of their repentance by their purity. Repentance involves admitting to specific sins and requesting forgiveness from those whom you have sinned against. Repentance involves admitting to specific sins and requesting forgiveness from those whom you've sinned against. So I'd, li- I'd like to share uh, just in, in more or less in summary uh, five characteristics that you we can observe in a repenter. Number one, a repenter renews his mind with the truth from scriptures consistently. <clears throat> he is aware of the battle against temptation. He is aware that the battle against temptation is first waged in his mind and that the process of repentance begins there. We know that right theology leads to right thinking, leads to right living. Right theology leads to right thinking, leads to right living. Number two, 
a repenter responds to God immediately. At the first sign of conviction, he agrees with God about his sin, turns away from it, and turns to the Lord. Number three, a repenter obeys God completely. His repentance is thorough, and he does not cast a longing look back at sin. He forsakes the temporary pleasure of sin for the abiding joy of God's blessing. Number four, a repenter follows God personally. He does not base his commitment to God on what others are doing. Though no one joins me, still I will follow, expresses the attitude of his heart. Number five, a repenter accepts God's discipline faithfully, realizing that sin has consequences. He accepts the Lord's discipline as an act of love and as a reminder when he next faces temptation. So a repenter renews his mind, responds to God, obeys God, follows God personally, and accepts God's discipline. I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about the direction of a man in his walk with Christ. The good news about repentance is that when true repentance comes, you'll know. Why? Because you will have a sorrowful heart that is also joyful. Joyful to not be running any longer in, the sin, in that sinful direction that you had been on. You will have a sorrow that will have no regrets turning from your sin. A sorrow that won't leave you feeling like you've lost something. but that you've only gained something. It is a sorrow that gives you evidence of the salvation that you've been enjoying. It is a sorrow that is in alignment with God's will. So with godly sorrow, you'll be grateful and humble, focused on your Savior, on His holy name, on how he suffered and died in your place, was buried and raised from the dead so that you might walk in newness of life now and for all of eternity. Your gratitude will have no boundaries. John Newton knew himself to be the greatest of sinners, but after coming to God, he composed these words. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. When I uh, was talking to Scott about presenting uh, this message, this message on um, repentance, I said, "I have a lot of material, Scott, and uh, so I might need some extra time." Well, the good news for you guys is that. Um, I went through it and uh, with my chief editor, <laughs> who's my wife, and uh, so we did pull out some things that were uh, a little bit of a repetitive, uh, repetitive in the message. So uh, the good news is that uh, we're going to wrap up here today, and and uh, you won't unless you hang around for fellowship. You won't need to be here till nine fifteen. So in, in closing. Um, I want to read to you an excerpt out of uh, Scott Maxwell's prayer. Uh, it is a prayer that uh, I think is handed out to uh, most everyone that goes uh, through Wellspring and Build. And uh, this just is, uh, it is so, uh, so humble and precise when it comes to dealing with, uh, with sin. This is from Scott Maxwell. 
I have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and fallenness before you so that I might better understand what danger I truly was in and what dangers still lurk within me through my indwelling sin. I need to see both the sin that provoked your righteous wrath towards your son and your grace that moved you to act as Savior toward me in Jesus. If I do not fight to have Scripture's view of my sin today, it will easily be duped by sin's deception and become unaware of or indifferent to sin's nearness to me. I then will be vulnerable to sin's entanglements. Sin, at that point, can then become familiar, even tolerable to me. Finally, sin can then become a delight to me. Before I know it, I will be in a position of weakness with sin. I will be in the fight of my life to be free from its entanglements or may even no longer desire to be free from its entanglements. If I do nothing today concerning my view of sin, my view of sin will only grow dangerously cloudy. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that you have given us your word so that we, we, we absolutely need nothing. We can run to you each and every time we are in need. And we need every day, all day. We need your wisdom. We need your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to give us desires to want to do what is right. Father, we thank you for the, the doctrine of repentance. Thank you that you would give the ultimate through your Son for allowing us to be reconciled to you and restored to you. We are so grateful, Father. So grateful to be rescued from the domain of darkness and delivered to uh, your kingdom, the son of your kingdom. So we praise you, Lord. Thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.